And Advent is one of those times where we specifically start uh, turning our hearts towards uh, thinking about the return of Christ. And we do that by not only reflecting on his first Advent or his first coming, but his second one, the promised return of our Savior. And so uh, this is a time of reflection on our preparation for his return to meet him. Uh, and when you think about Christ's first appearance, yes, we think of the story of his miraculous birth, right? The shepherds visiting, uh, the, the nativity scene, uh, all the kind of the miraculous things, the angels announcing. Uh, but it is almost impossible to tell the story of Christ's appearance without including the figure of John the Baptist. So uh, chronologically, John the Baptist uh, his birth was announced first. Uh, remember that whole scene? Um, it was announced in the temple about uh, six months before uh, Jesus' announcement was. Um, he was born about six months before. He was a distant cousin of the Lord Jesus. Uh, there was the angel that announced his temple. There was the age of his parents, uh, the supernatural muting of John's father until the birth and naming of John. Like There's a lot of uh, miraculous events surrounding both of these births. But then the Bible goes silent on John the Baptist. We hear kind of about his, uh, pr- the, the prophecy of his birth. We hear about the surrounding situations. And then the Bible just goes silent until John shows up in the wilderness of Judea as an adult. And so John kind of burst onto the scene about six months before Jesus publicly declared the beginning of his ministry uh, with his baptism at the hands of John the baptizer. Now, John's message was simple. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he he began to preach repentance. His message was, the mightier one is coming. Get ready. His message was divinely inspired. It was divinely foretold. And it was divinely empowered. And his methods were unique. Baptism up until this point was not for the Jew. And so at this point in the history of the Jewish people, baptism was reserved for converts, Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And so they would be, as one of their last rite, they would be washed ceremonially and then considered to be Jewish, right? They were washed away from their filth and Gentileness and they would become Jews. And so when John came preaching a baptism of repentance to Jews, this was a new thing. This was a unique thing. And this is one of the reasons that the religious leaders went out to see what he was doing. They say, look, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, why are you baptizing people? Like what what authority are you doing this by? And so this was a unique ministry. His method was unique. And as I was looking back over the things as a church we've looked at around Christmas time, we have looked already at the central message of John to repent Last year, we contrasted his baptism with the baptism that we are commanded to observe as the church. And so today I wanted to do something a little different and look at rather some of the implications uh, from the ministry of John the Baptist uh, that we see uh, in this story. And so what I hope, I'm praying this morning that it helps us see the larger picture of the part he plays in Christ's story which, by the way, is the central story, right? Not just Christmas time, but in all creation and for all time, it's all about Christ. And so when we look at John the Baptist, we see a great picture of someone who is pointing towards Christ. And so this morning we're going to turn to the gospel writer Mark's record 
So if you have your Bibles, turn there to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to pick up in verse 2 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verse 2. And so if you have your Bibles, follow along. If not, uh, we have it on the screen. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is probably one of the most succinct summaries of John's ministry and his message and his methods. And so as we look this morning, I want to remind you, we're looking at three implications from the ministry and message of John the Baptist. The first is this. If you're a note taker, repentance is necessary for all people. So when we talk about John the Baptist's ministry, when we talk about his message of repentance, the first implication we see is it is necessary for all peoples. And so let's back up and and see if we can get there together this morning. So Mark, along with the other gospel writers and John himself, all identify himself with this ministry And this person that was prophesied some 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah, that God told him, listen, this is going to happen. A messenger is going to come. He's going to be the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. And this is easy enough to see, right? After 400 years of no prophetic voice in Israel, God raises up John, who begins his ministry not in the temple, not in Jerusalem, the center of Israel life, but in the wilderness, He rejects the modern conveniences of life, rather choosing to live like a prophet of old, dressed like Elijah, living off the land, speaking against the religious leaders whose hearts had grown cold towards the things of God. God sent him to fulfill the ministry of preparing the way of the Lord. Right? This is in John burst on the scene in this unique way, um, like a prophet of old, calling people out to the wilderness to repent. God sent him to fulfill this ministry of preparing the way of the Lord. Specifically, the prophet says that he will cry out, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This message alludes to the practice in the ancient world. We find this from the commentaries. In the ancient world, it was customary for kings to receive a royal welcome. So when an emperor or some other eminent personage was about to visit a city, the citizens would be required to prepare a well-constructed approach road along which he could advance with due pomp and dignity on his way to the city. To make sure that the people were ready to receive him, the king would send a messenger on ahead of him to herald the news of his coming. Right, And so Isaiah uses this modern practice to illustrate what God is going to do in preparation for the king. So they would they would announce it, and the roads would, of course, need work. As you can imagine from our own experience, roads break down from use. 
I think it feels like the last two years they've been working on Highway 80 behind me, right? Before that, it was old Highway 80, but we know that by use, roads break down. Now, imagine the condition of the roads in the ancient days when there were less uh, knowledge, understanding, less engineering, less people, less fundage, right? These were just dirt roads often, and they broke down quickly and and wagon ruts and holes and, and boulders. And so when a king was coming, that was an unacceptable condition. So the people would go out and they would smooth the way in preparation for the king to come. So there would be much preparation that went into getting ready for the king or the emperor. Isaiah uses this picture to describe what God is going to do in the future, but he envisions more than just smoothing existing roads, right? For this is no ordinary king. This is the king of kings. He says, this is what he says in his prophecy. The voice cries out, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight. And this is what's going to happen. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He says, this is no ordinary road. We're going to lower, we're going to level mountains. We're going to build up plains. Like we are going to flatten everything and make it smooth because the King of Kings is coming. Amen. This complete and radical preparation is indicative of who follows the voice. So what's the implication? from this prophetic picture given by God to Isaiah about John the Baptist's ministry. In preparation, things had to radically change in God's people if they were going to be ready to receive God's king. Things had to radically change in the life of God's people if they were going to be ready to receive his king. So what was John's message to people who were about to meet this coming king. What did he tell them to do in order to prepare the way? Repent. That was his message. He came proclaiming a repentance. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance was the means by which the way would be prepared. Now, In today's world, repentance is not a common word outside of the church. And listen, in some churches, it's not a common word inside the church. But repentance is central to his message. And and repentance has sometimes been described as a change of mind or a, a turning of sins. And it's certainly not less than that, but it is more than that. Repentance is not just changing your mind. It's not just turning away from sin. It is turning towards God. It's not just turning away from the negative, it's turning fully towards the positive. It's looking to him in trust, obeying what he has commanded, practicing what he has prescribed for his people. It is a turning away from the things that are against God and turning to things that are for God and by God and and, uh, uh, commanded by him. Now, we need to understand contextually who John is proclaiming this message to. We already alluded to it a little bit. John is proclaiming to the nation of Israel, God's people. This is the message. This is the audience. The inheritors of the covenant promises to Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, those who had the benefit of a knowledge of the one true God. But the people had become indifferent. The religious leaders had become puffed up with pride and the religious system had been corrupted. 
They thought they were ready for the Messiah to come. And John's proclamation is, you are not ready. Repent. You're not ready for him to come. The way is not prepared unless you repent. Turn from your sins and turn back to God. And listen, as unlikely as this situation is, and as unlikely as this lone, strange individual crying out in the wilderness of Judea would attract much of a crowd or elicit much response, people began to pour out of the surrounding areas in droves. Like, it doesn't seem like one figure in the wilderness that is just anti-everything. He doesn't live in the city. He doesn't, he doesn't preach in the temple. He doesn't even wear modern clothes. He doesn't eat a modern diet. And he's out in the wilderness by himself in Jordan proclaiming, repent. It doesn't seem like that would do much in the people's hearts, but God is at work. And he draws these crowds to John the Baptist. And listen, we see that not only do they come out, they are repenting. And it's evidenced by their public confession of sins and their baptism and their desire to know how to live in light of their repentance and renewed faith in what God was about to do. The Bible says, in all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. In the Gospel of Luke, his account, we find them asking John the Baptist, what fruit should be evident in my life? They understood that a call to repent was not a one-time action, but a life change in preparation to meet the coming king. So there's a situation. Let me ask you a question in light of all that. If Israel, God's chosen people, who had more intimate knowledge of him than any other peoples on the world at this time, needed to repent, how much more does the rest of the world? If Israel, the ones that were given intimate knowledge of God and a system by which to worship him, if they needed to repent, how much more do we? There's no one who heard the message of John or who hears it repeated today who does not need to repent. The need of repentance is a universal reality because sin is a universal reality. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and therefore every person needs to repent. Furthermore, every time we read of the gospel advancing in the book of Acts, it is accompanied by repentance. At Pentecost, the men are cut to the heart, and they ask, what must we do? When the gospel is proclaimed to the Gentiles by Peter, the Bible says they repent and the spirit falls. Jew or Gentile, in order to be ready to meet the Savior, repentance is necessary. Now, repentance may look different in the lives of the people because sin is different. Different lifestyles, different sin may require different repentance. But if I could this morning just kind of highlight four areas common areas of repentance that I'm going to, and we're going to use the prophecy of Isaiah as an illustration. Uh, he talks about the low places being lifted up, the high things being brought down, the uneven things made even, and the rough things made passable or smooth. I think these are all areas that we can use our imagination to look at repentance. The low places or the valleys shall be lifted up. Some people need to repent 
from a self-loathing attitude towards themselves. I'm not good enough for God to save me. God doesn't care about me. I've done too much, right? You, you make too little of God's grace and you need to, to come to the realization that God loves humanity so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him might be saved, right? There is no one worth saving. So you need to repent of the fact that you think you are unsavable. Amen? Amen. But then there's also those that have too high of a view of themselves. The high things will be brought low. Some need to repent from a sense of pride and arrogance that they don't need to be saved because they're not that bad. That somehow if they stood before God, the good would outweigh the bad. They need to repent from pride and arrogance, realizing that all stand ultimately guilty before a just and righteous and holy God. So whether you think too little of yourself or too highly of yourself, listen, the way that we are to repent is to agree with what God says about self, and we'll get to that in a moment. But first, the uneven things, the crooked paths, Isaiah shall be made even. And I, may, I, I was thinking about what a crooked path would look like in this day and what it would look like to make it even. And I think for me, this is a picture of repentance from thoughts that are inconsistent with God's word. The things that take us off the path of the truth and in accordance to God's word and the things in the lies we tell ourselves and the lies we believe about ourselves and the world and God, we need to repent of those thoughts so that we can understand the straight and narrow truth of God. And then he not only says that he's going to make these crooked paths straight, he said he's going to make the rough places, the impassable places, shall be smoothed. I think this is a picture of repentance from actions that are inconsistent with God's word. Uh, we need to repent of the lifestyles, the choices, the actions we are doing that is making it impassable in our lives for God's word to penetrate. I'll say this. Listen, you are neither too bad to repent and you are not too good to repent. Additionally, it is both your thoughts and your actions that need to change in repentance. But here is the inescapable reality present in John's message. There is no one ready to meet Christ that is not repentant. There is no one ready to meet the coming king that is not repentant. It is a universal need, and that is what John comes and proclaims. This is the first implication in John's ministry and message. Repentance is necessary for all peoples. There is no one exempt from the need to repent. The second implication is this. Repentance precedes forgiveness. So if you're a note taker, uh, repentance precedes forgiveness. If the first implication deals with those who need repentance, everyone, then this answers the question why they need repentance repentance. Ultimately, this is what we need to stand before God and not be destroyed in our sins. We need them to be forgiven. God is a holy and just and righteous God. He is a consuming fire and he will not tolerate rebellion and sin against him. This is what makes repentance necessary. But God did not just, or John did not just proclaim repentance. He says, he appeared baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is why they needed to repent. And so this sentence can be a little bit 
confusing if we misunderstand the word in the sentence proclaiming a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Nowhere in Scripture are we told that their act of baptism was what brought them forgiveness of sins, right? This physical washing away was ceremonial and representative of what was happening in their hearts when they repented and put their trust in what God was doing. If they wanted to experience forgiveness of sins, repentance was a necessary prerequisite. John's baptism was a public act of proclaiming one's repentance indicated by a confession of sins And it was an act of obedience to what God had commanded John to do in preparation for Jesus' arrival. Okay. Don't miss this. Say, so what? Don't miss this. It was not the public act of baptism that brought forgiveness. It was an inward heart change evidenced by confession and repentance. You see the difference? There was not something they could do to be forgiven. It was something they experienced, and then they were baptized. This is why this is important. Raising your hand, saying a prayer, signing a commitment card, being baptized, joining a church. These external indicators do not bring about forgiveness of sins. They are merely an indicator of an inward change of a repentant heart. Nothing you can do in your own power can secure your forgiveness of sins. Nothing. John did not tell them to be baptized so they would be forgiven. He told them to repent in order to be forgiven, and then they would be baptized as an indicator of that situation that had happened in their heart. Listen, let me say it again. Nothing you can do in your own power can secure your forgiveness of sins, and this is why. Not even in the most elaborate, God-given, sacrificial system of the temple could sin be dealt with fully and finally. The author of Hebrews says it this way, but in these sacrifices, that is the whole Jewish sacrificial system of the temple, there is a reminder of sins every year for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If the God-given, divinely inspired, heaven-copied system of sacrifice could not deal with sin, what do you think you can do to deal with your sin? There is nothing that will give you forgiveness of sins that you can do. So John says, there is a way to be forgiven. There is a way to experience reconciliation. You have to repent and turn to God in preparation for the coming one who could deal with sin. The other part of John's message is what he proclaimed after Jesus' baptism, John 1, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He says, this is the one. This is the one whom I was preparing the way for. This is the object of your faith and trust. This is who you turn to when you turn from sin. This is where your forgiveness comes from. Not baptism but who you turn to in repentance, who you place your faith in. So how does one receive forgiveness of sins? I'm so glad you asked. 1 John 1, 9 tells us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What causes us to confess our sins? Repentance. 
turning away from the things we once loved, realizing they are sinful and against God, so we confess them. To confess in the biblical understanding is to agree with, to assent, to say the same thing as another. Oftentimes we think of confession as the, what, what someone does when they get caught. But biblical confession is to say the same thing as someone else. Who are we agreeing with in our confession of sin? God. God has already pronounced what is sinful. God has already pronounced his judgment on that sin. Confession is agreeing that what we have done was sin and that it deserves judgment. It is saying the same thing as God concerning our life and actions. That's confession. And forgiveness of sins is not possible without confessions of sins and confessions of sins is not possible without repentance from sin. So John the Baptist, in preparing for the people to meet Jesus, commanded them to repent and upon repentance, they confessed their sins and they were baptized. Here's, this, here's the point of all this. It is safe to say that if you have not repented of your sins, your sins have not been forgiven. It doesn't matter what external action you might have participated in. John shows us that forgiveness comes from repentance, which leads us to our third implication this morning. But before we get there, I want to I walk us back through where we have been so far. Who needs to repent? Every single person who has yet to do so. Why do they need to repent? So they can have their sins forgiven and be reconciled to God, without which you are not prepared to meet him upon your death or his return. So if I've done even a remotely good job conveying the truth to you this morning, the question I pray that is on your mind is this, what is it? What is repentance and how do I know if I've done it? If this is what I need, and I am all people, I am somebody who has not repented, and I want to be forgiven of my sin, how do I do it? So the third implication this morning is repentance is both a response and an action. This answers the question, how do they receive forgiveness of sins? Let us start with the first statement, repentance is a response. It is a response most simply because God initiates the call. God raised John the Baptist up. God gave him a message to go into the wilderness and to cry out. And God sent him to baptize. Without God's action, there is no John the Baptist. Without John the Baptist, there is no proclamation. And without the proclamation, none of those multitudes of people would have repented. This is important for us to understand. God acted first. His people had in many ways perverted his law. They had failed their calling as a light to the Gentiles. They had corrupted the temple. And yet, God sent John to prepare the way for his son, who would come into his own people with a message of forgiveness and reconciliation. And ultimately, they would reject him. But listen. Repentance is not something you muster up from within yourself because you are a righteous person. It is not something you you muster up within yourself because you are a smart person or a humble person. Repentance is a gift from God. And let me explain why that is. This is what Peter declares before the Sanhedrin. Do you remember that story? They're preaching and, and they're arrested and the Sanhedrin forbid them from proclaiming the name of Jesus. Listen to what he says. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Christ rose from the dead, ascended back to the Father, receiving his eternal kingdom in order to what? To give repentance to Israel, to give forgiveness of sins and to give the Holy Spirit. Listen to me. All of salvation is a gift from God from beginning to end. All of it. But lest someone says, well, Peter says here, Pastor, Israel. What about those outside of the nation of Israel? Again, I'm so glad you asked these great questions. Because the same Peter talking later to the church in Jerusalem recounts his experience among the Gentiles. And I want you to listen to what he says. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as it on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord. How he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When the council, when the church heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has also granted repentance that leads to life to the Gentiles. The Bible teaches in these places and others that repentance is something that God gives people in order for them to experience forgiveness of sins, salvation, life, and the presence of the Holy Spirit. If that's true, then how can we also say repentance is an action? Because the same scriptures that tells us that repentance is a gift tells us that repentance leads to action. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So whoever calls on the name of the Lord, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you will be saved. What I want you to see this morning is that the action follows the response. That is, God sovereignly acts in your life so that you desire him, that you recognize your sinfulness, which leads to repentance, where you confess your sins and place all of your hope and trust in Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, the one God raised from the dead, who is now and forever will be the Lord. So it is both. It is a response and an action. But do not miss the fact that the act of repentance does not have the power to take away our sin. Forgiveness comes only through Christ and his cross. But unless we repent, we will never be forgiven. Because only people who are repentant for their sins will ever admit they need a Savior in the first place. This is the experience that John the Baptist speaks of when he says, listen, I'm baptizing you with water, but the one coming after me is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is language of conversion where God makes alive what is dead, where he brings life and light into the life of the lost, right? This is uh, John washed away out external water. Jesus was going to change from the inside out because he was going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. To return to our text this morning, God initiated the call to repentance. He drew men and women to John and through his message, he gave John, he granted repentance to those he called and they responded by confessing their sins and being baptized by John. This is what we find in our text. But ultimately, 
Only those that trusted in the resurrected Lord would experience full and final forgiveness of their sins. Disciples of John the Baptist, like the Apostle John or Andrew, men that responded to John's call to repentance and then placed their trust in the finished work of Christ to one John pointed to. So in the very first people who followed Jesus, it is a direct result of John the Baptist preparing the way. They had come out and they had repented and they had been baptized and they were seeking what God was doing. And then when John said, there he is, they followed him. And they become some of his closest disciples. This is men that experienced forgiveness of sins. Because listen, this was the purpose of John's ministry of proclaiming repentance was to prepare the way for who was coming after him. Part of his message in verse 7, it says, He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Have you ever wondered what it meant for him to say, I will, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals? Well, on this day, a rabbi wasn't really paid by his students, but they would take care of the basic necessities. A good rabbi that had students wouldn't really need to do much in the sense of taking care of his stuff. It was customary for students to follow their teachers, and they would show their devotion by performing menial acts of service. A great teacher hardly had to lift a finger. His students did everything for him. Everything, that is, except unlace his sandals. According to one ancient rabbi, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal thong. That would be going too far. Unlacing someone's sandals was so degrading that a student could not be compelled to do it. John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Compared to the immeasurable worth of Christ, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of the low slave in the household of God. If we learn anything from John, let it be this attitude concerning ourselves in regards to Christ. Listen, none of us are worthy to follow Christ. None of us are worthy to be slaves to Christ, not even the lowest slave that would unlace his sandals. And yet, in this Advent season, we remember, we remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We remember that the creator of the universe entered his creation so that men and women might experience salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. We remember that Christ came and lived the life you and I could not live and died the death we deserve so that we might live in him. We remember that Christ promises to come again to judge the living and the dead. We remember that none are ready to meet him unless they have repented of their sins, trusted in him for salvation, and have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Some 2,000 years have passed since John the Baptist cried out in the wilderness, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet this morning, his message still rings as truly and powerfully as it did then. And according to the Lord, it is the message we are to proclaim until he returns. In some of his final moments with his disciples, before he ascended into heaven, he told them this, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. 
They were to go and proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. This is the message. Forgiveness of sins is possible because of Jesus Christ for those that repent of their sins and call out to him. Let us pray this morning.